Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we will be talking to Matt Bernius, a design anthropologist that works as a lead user researcher at Measures for Justice and an affiliate researcher at Implosion Labs. We will talk to Matt about his journey from product manager with Kodak to design anthropologist in the technology space, working with, amongst others, open source labs, ethics and AI. We talk about the ethical implications of mistaking chatbots for humans and why the do-no-evil mantra is not enough when developing technology. We also talk about the cooperative yet antagonistic relationship between a company and its customers and how anthropologists can assist. Finally, Matt gives three key advices to those interested in transitioning from academia to the applied sector and to those companies interested in hiring anthropologists. We hope you enjoy it. Matt, thank you for um, for being here with us on our show. Um, and we would like to start this episode by by just asking you a question that we ask all of our speakers, which is just to give a brief definition from your perspective on what is anthropology and what is technology. Well, you're definitely leading with a little bit of a difficult question there, because uh, because I think they are both such broad topics in some ways. So I typically go with. Wikipedia's definition of technology, which I which I think really works very, very well, in that technology is everything from the techniques, skills, methods, and processes used in the production of goods, services, intelligence, or in the accomplishment of specific objectives, whether that's uh, scientific inve- investigation or even just the day-to-day living of culture. So it's just a gigantic category of things. One of the things I jokingly said uh, recently is that if I'm going to play Bordeaux for a moment, it's a culturing, it's a cultural construct, constructing culture. So it's both social, cultural, and it's also deeply political. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's one of those things that everyone says, oh, I know exactly what technology is. But when you take a step back and really think about it, it's just such a sweeping category of things. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, anthropology, in its most simple form, it's the the study of humans, but more importantly, the study of humans in a specific cultural context. So we're not just simply interested in the body, but we're interested in bodies and uh, in place, in time, in communication with each other, constructing this thing that especially for myself, somebody who comes from a cultural anthropology background, are building up that thing that we call culture. Now, I think that's about all that you can get most anthropologists to agree on on any given day as to what anthropology is. After that point, everyone has their own idiosyncratic view of what specifically is anthropology and often equally importantly, what isn't anthropology. That is so true. You know, the meaning behind each person's individual's definition of anthropology also is connected to their own journey on on this path of anthropology, which is not always so linear, right? So... um, Completely. (laughs) Leading that into our next question, um, can you tell us and our listeners a bit about your own path uh, with anthropology? How did you start? How did you went into it? Um, and how we are you using it right now? Sure. Uh, my, my path definitely qualifies as nonlinear. So I got started in anthropology accidentally 
accidentally. Uh, I often think about myself as an ex- accidental anthropologist. And the way I got involved with it was actually through technology. Uh, and some of these questions around what is the relationship between technology and people and culture and the reflexive feedback loops that form in between them. So I actually did my undergraduate here in the States in new media publishing. And this was back in the mid-90s, right at the point where the internet and the web were coming online. So I got my first job as a web designer uh, at Eastman Kodak and specifically at Eastman Kodak's uh, digital and Applied Imaging Group. Now, this was the group that was introducing consumer digital cameras to the world. And just to, <laughs> it's amazing how far we've come in such a short amount of time. I was uh, just reminiscing on some of the first cameras that we brought out. And the first megapixel, so one million pixel camera at the time, cost over $1,000. This was a consumer camera. It was unique in that it was the first camera that actually had a small screen embedded in the back that had a preview image for when you took the picture. However, what it didn't have was any way of deleting that. And so even for us uh, who are now in a world where we're so used to that idea of we can see the picture immediately and delete it, it seems counterintuitive that that feature wouldn't have been built into the first camera. But what we... What I got to see was exactly how and why decisions like that were made and all the unexpected ways that people began to use digital cameras uh, and digital photography and the way it was changing photography. And that got me very, very interested in cultural questions about what was a picture, what is a picture, what's the value of a picture, why are certain decisions made? And I remember the conversation to this day. I happened to be talking with a colleague about these things, and he uh, stopped and thought for a second, looked at me and said, you know, that sounds like anthropology. You should just go to the University of Chicago and do (laughs) an anthropology degree. And that must have stuck with me because a number of years later, I made the decision to uh, leave Kodak for a while and uh, pursue a uh, master's at the University of Chicago in their Master's of the Social Sciences program with a focus on semiotic and media anthropology. And so um, it was an amazing experience. I applied to the program without ever having visited the University of Chicago. And I'm very glad that I did because I think if I had actually been there, I probably would have been too intimidated to actually apply the program. (laughs) Uh, but there I was, uh, just about to turn 30, having never read any social theory in my life and being dropped in the deep end of the pool, expected mm-hmm. to pick, pick up the fundamentals of Marx, Durkheim, yep. Weber, all the rest in <laughs> just one week each. <laughs> and at the time, it actually uh, led me to a topic that I've continued to follow since then, which is the role uh, a study of artificial intelligence. So my master's work at uh, Chicago was on chatbots. Uh, and how I got into that's a funny but a separate story. Uh, but I also was applying some of these findings to a number of other emergent movements like uh, the open source movement and e- even questions around digital cameras. And in fact, uh, my goal had been after I left Chicago to return to Kodak and work in the research labs. But uh, by that point, the company was already in some financial issues. And so instead of returning to Kodak, I ended up uh, teaching for two years at the Rochester Institute of Technology. 
And while I was there, I really got involved with the open source movement and uh, formed an open source publishing lab to research Wikipedia and a lot of the emergent publishing tools that were coming out. That in turn uh, led me to begin a PhD at, Co- at Cornell in their cultural anthropology program, but also the way Cornell was structured. I was doing a lot of work in the science and technology studies department and uh, communications and information science. And my focus at the time was on transformation of journalism inside the U.S. and efforts by uh, organizations like the James L. Knight Foundation through their innovation grants to bring a Silicon Valley hacking mentality to the news. But after a few years at Cornell, I just really realized that that wasn't the right path for me and left and got very lucky uh, to make a transition into the private sector, working as a design anthropologist with an agency, uh, an experienced agency uh, named Effective uh, that's based out of Denver. And, Mm. And so for the next part of my journey, I got a chance to work with clients like Autodesk and Honeywell and a number of other ones. Uh, bringing an anthropological and ethnographic lens to some of their design challenges. And just this past year, I have struck out on my own and been lucky enough to work with some wonderful clients like uh, Mozilla and Google on a number of projects surrounding open source and uh, other emergent technology issues. Um, we, we like to ask our speakers, because it's a question that we get so often ourselves, is how come you work in technology if technology is so evil? In the context of, you know, talking to the relationships people have with technology, we'd love to hear your opinion on, on this particular um, piece of discourse that comes, um, especially from the, the wider public. Yeah, that is a, a, a really important and very difficult question. And I'm really glad you asked it. I'd like to actually begin by talking about a little anecdote I had while I was teaching at Cornell. One of the types of courses that is taught at Cornell is what's called a writing in the majors course, where students from across the university will take a course that is about writing, but is also about a specific area of the social sciences. So, for example, anthropology. So... It's a chance to teach students who wouldn't normally take an anthropology course about anthropology. And the reading that was assigned for one week was a essay, an article about ethnic dolls and the challenges with creating ethnic dolls and the issue of stereotyping and all of these different pieces. And a conversation that came up in the section that I was leading with these smart students was... Everyone was talking about the content of the article, and then finally somebody asked, you know, or, or rather said, you know, I, I walked away from this article with the sense that you can't possibly make an ethnic doll that is going to be not able to be critiqued and, and doesn't risk reproducing stereotypes. So does that mean we shouldn't make ethnic dolls at all? And that's a so that conversation stuck with me because I think it really speaks to the fact that we risk sometimes being so critical of things that we don't allow ourselves any room to move or to act ethically in what we're doing. And the challenge with technology, and I, I, I sh- should say I really come out of the Donna Haraway camp on a number of issues, is that there's no completely clean way for us 
to distance ourselves from technology in any way. From the moment that humans began to use tools, we became cyborgs. Uh, that we interact with the world through our technologies. It's they fundamentally mediate our relationship, and so we have to think about technology, especially those of us involved in it, in a way that's critical, but also recognize that we don't have the opportunity to simply say, well, let's not use technology. Rather, I think our job as anthropologists is to really think about the way the technology is a mediator, to think about the ethical and moral concerns within those mediations, and make sure that ev- that when people are making decisions, that we're making decisions in a way that is concerned with the needs of the users, is concerned with the effect mm-hmm. of technology on people's lives. Mm-hmm. So I love I love your answer because it really speaks to a lot of um, this aspect of interdependence um, and almost symbiosis between, um, you know, the person and the technology and how they um, use that in in just living their lives. Um, and, and I was wondering, because there is such a strong interconnectedness between how people use technology as this kind of mediation um, of their life, to say, um, that also speaks to how much agency they have to appropriate the specific technology that was designed in a specific way, right? And transform it, change it, um, use it to their own purposes. So my question would be, since there's such a strong interconnectedness between the person that uses and the technology, how is that being taken into account by the companies that develop technology? The, the great challenge with technology, and, and, and you mentioned interconnectedness, is that we as humans are really good at not just simply making meaning, but also erasing things from our interactions with the world. So the thing about technology is nine times out of ten, people notice it when it's when it's cumbersome, when it's mm-hmm. a hindrance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when everything is working correctly, we kind of ignore all of this. So for the moment right now, I'm talking to you through a microphone that's connected to a computer, that's connected to the internet, that is sending our our voices to each other from halfway across the world. Take a moment out to think about that, to think about those relationships. It takes me out of this moment of interacting with you. It's very Heideggerian in that way, mm-hmm. is I can either be in the moment and, and, and the moment that I'm being there, all of that goes away. Or I can think about the technology and everything, my ability to talk about anything else is going to disappear. Mm-hmm. So what companies increasingly, I think, are coming to understand is that, uh, first of all, you can do all the design work you want in the world, but design isn't completely deterministic. Users, whoever we're talking about in, in let me just sidestep to a different point really quickly. I'm going to use the term user a lot within the design research community and the design community in general. There's a lot of debate around that term. I use it because it's a convenient term, but I'm using it as a shorthand for the people who are working, integrating these technologies into their di- into their day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. While I may say the term user, I always think about them as people. It's just... 
it's easier for me to say user. Um, so you're talking about users and that makes me think more about like ethics and that. And I was like reading your article just before this and you were talking about Tiffany, the bot that you met and got confused for a person. And I was just mm-hmm. wondering like the ethical issues with people that create or even like how they allow these bots to be on these chat sites and like not just that example but in general like the ethical issues in designing technological products like what have you seen or what are your thoughts on such things oh that's a wonderful question uh i think the challenge with ethics in the tech space so often they don't enter into a conversation you know, I, I think to some degree, there there are a couple different camps. Clearly, the individual uh, and in the article, I talk about an encounter with a, a chatbot that was really designed just to get people to sign up for a fake webcam site for identity theft. Um, that, without a doubt, is somebody who mm-hmm. has made some very dubious ethical decisions in their lives. I think... There's an interesting scale that we can then go from, which is uh, the individual who initially is creating a, creating a game in one of these freemium experiences that have become so common that start to slowly put in more things that are going to draw a user back. Yes, that individual is thinking about that, but they may not be fully thinking about the aspect of that choice within a larger sociality. Or uh, going back to Kodak is a really interesting one, is uh, the choice of the development of their color science to, quite frankly, maximize for quite a while the reproduction of skin colors of Caucasians. And it wasn't that they were ethical, they, they were making an ethical decision saying, you know what, we, we want to create, for lack of a better term, racist film. But this broad... Uh, constellation of decisions being made within an organization that wasn't thinking about things in an ethical context eventually led to something that reproduced structures of inequality. Mm-hmm. So I think the the best thing that we're slowly seeing within the tech industry is a turn towards trying to consider some ethics. I think a challenge as well is that still that often comes out as what used to be uh, Google's chief ethical direction for quite some years, which was do no evil or do. Yeah, I think it was do no evil. And as we know, that isn't always good enough uh, for any of a variety of reasons. So I think one of the roles that we as researchers have to negotiate um in these discussions, in the construction of our work, is how do we manage uh, different ethical and moral issues as they arise? I can at least say that for myself and for the agencies that I've had the pleasure of working with, one of the things that we did to try and tackle some of those issues, borrowing a page from IDEO and some others, was actually come up with an internal set of uh, research code of conduct and moral goals that we stri- we strove to include in all of our projects. I I often think when I think about the, the topic of ethics about the, the the topic of power and agency. 
Um, and I think, I mean, for me, they're, they're, they're very interrelated, the two. And especially when it comes to applied anthropology in the technology field, we've, we've had a few of our speakers also speak to the, to the topic of power. You know, like who, um, what is the ideology around power with a specific technological object? How much power does the organization have or think they have over or changing or influencing um, the way that technological object will be used in somebody's um, day-to-day life. Um, and what, how exactly is that object in reality used and what's the power the, the, the person that uses it has to influence the object themselves and to appropriate it and to use it to however they think um, um, makes sense for their own experience of the world. So, um, I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you if you can speak a bit um, to that dynamic of power um, and how what is the perception inside the organizations that you've worked with surrounding that? That is a wonderful question, and it's been with us for so long. I think one of the the most profound examples of that uh, are you familiar with the story of the early Model Ts and their use on farms? Would be great if you could share it. So when. Uh, when Ford developed the initial Model T, it had a uh, a system where only one wheel actually spun to power the device. What farmers did, at least in the United States, was take uh, take the Model T out into fields and attach it via a belt to different pieces of farm equipment and use that one wheel to par- power their farm equipment. And in fact, um, people began to sell essentially mod kits for, for Model Ts to allow them to power all of these different types of devices. So on the one side, you have users, uh, customers, whatever we want to call them, looking at an object and, and thinking about all of these ways that it can be used that are subversive, that are outside of the, in, the intended use for the that the original creator had come up with. The, the Model T was a transportation device. It wasn't a mobile engine, even though literally part of what every car is is a mobile engine. Uh, and Ford eventually took steps to prevent that from being done. But it's a pattern that if you look at technologies you see over and over again, uh, a different example of that was in, in the early days of Kodak, I had deep and heated conversations with people who said that the LCD on the back of a camera will never be used as a viewfinding device for for picture composition because it doesn't make sense. It's too power intensive. It's all those pieces. And not only were we already seeing use in the world that contradicted that, that assumption, but one only had to look at the evolution of uh, video cameras to see that move away from a small viewfinder to utilizing an LCD screen to do it. Now, what's interesting about that, uh, if we're placing in the history of digital cameras, was that um, a lot of stories that were told, I discovered about what people would and wouldn't do with these devices, were often based on the technology histories of different companies. And so, for example, Kodak while it had wonderful imaging technology, didn't have good display technology. So to some degree, they were making strategic decisions about display technology based on where their strengths were and saying, well, things that won't work were in areas that organizationally they weren't strong in, they didn't know as a company. And so that 
makes this relationship between users and technology all so much more complex is that not only are there the the people who are utilizing the technology in a day-to-day life, integrating it into their lives, discovering new uses, imagining new uses, but there are companies that are telling themselves these stories about the technology and often restricting or trying to sometimes restrict how a technology can be used based on those stories. Mm-hmm. Things we're, we're at an interesting point where to some degree, the, there's both a cooperative relationship between companies and their clients and a slightly antagonistic one. Uh, the, anta- the antagonistic side leads to things like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, where there are attempts to prevent people from changing the use of products or reimagining what products are for. But at the same time, it's it's if you think about something like the iPhone uh, or Android phones or any smartphones, so much of the power of that device and why they caught on wasn't so much the phone aspect, Hmm. but was that it turned out to be a very indeterminate device in some ways that could be customized and Hmm. changed and transformed through the apps that people were putting on it. And so I think um, there was always going to be that tension between whose device is it at the end of the day? And I think it's still something thing that all sides are continuing to work out yeah and, and I negotiate think what we also see in some fields is that there is almost this fluid movement between who is the engineer and who is the user depending of you know the knowledge capital to influence um, some parts of the devices because I think with a lot of older technologies you there, there was the knowledge capital on how to modify or alter it was much more wider spread than nowadays with the technical tech with the technologies that we work with so for example for me it would be very difficult to kind of um, um, open up an iPhone or a Samsung or whatever and, and make some changes to it. But I've seen, for example, my brother or his his kind of friends that are much more um, advanced in um, in technology doing that and, you know, transforming a, a, a phone into some sort of hyper-technological objects, combining it with a lot of stuff. So I, I, I think that, that kind of um, as the, the field of STEM becomes more... Um, more spread, I think, and and just the knowledge of STEM is not isolated within a smaller group. Um, people will um, use technology and influence technology even more than they do today. You know. Yes, though I think that there are some interesting when we start to talk about design, uh, creating designs that invite that type of exploration. Mm. So, uh, Tolton Gillespie, who used to be at Cornell, he's now at uh, Microsoft Research. Uh, talked a lot about the metaphor of a car hood and that part of the thing about a car hood traditionally is that the driver had the ability to open it up and to actually look at the engine. And even if you didn't know mechanics, there was always that promise that, okay, I could (laughs) learn how this works and I could make modifications myself if I truly wanted to. I think one of the challenges that we have with a lot of technology, and again, now we get into a really interesting discussion about unintended consequences, is that some technologies, for specific reasons, 
are moving away from having that openable hood. Hmm. So your cell phone that's now constructed so that it can um, withstand being dropped in water, which for those of us who've accidentally dropped a cell phone in in something that has water in it, we know that that's an awful experience. A side effect is that also makes it much harder for you to get at the the internal stuff of it. Hmm. Now, we can ask, was that a very specific decision to make it waterproof, to make it less modifiable, or is that getting into a complex series of trade-offs? Hmm. Um, I, I, I definitely tend to be more of the... That was probably to make it waterproof because a lot of people drop their phones in the toilet. Um, but it has implications. I think one of the things that designers and to the degree that anthropologists should be involved in the design process, which I fundamentally believe that they should, is sometimes thinking about where is it necessary to add friction, productive friction to a process. Mm. We're we're recording this just a week a, a week after the incident in Hawaii where somebody clicked the same prompt twice in a row and set off a alert that there was a missile coming in. Mm. That's a process that needs more friction in it. Yeah. So what would you say would be the role of the anthropologist in kind of um, in in relationship to that friction between the the people and the and the ones that kind of produce the technology from your experience? I shared with you earlier that one of my heroes of anthropology is uh, not the most well-known. Her name was uh, Hortense Powdermaker, mm. and, and her memoir was entitled Stranger and Friend. And to me, that both sums up anthropology and also sums up our role and the exciting aspect that we can bring to a design process, which is... On the one side, we're the stranger, we're the outsider. You know, the, the history of anthropology, whether we're looking at European or U.S., is the person going to study a culture that is not their own. And the, there's so much that can be brought to this, that process through that process of alienation, that we're, that we're the outsider looking in. But equally important to that is the friend part which is that anthropologists and anthropology is founded in deep empathy. Our goal is to become friends, to, to find things about who we are studying that we love uh, and that resonate deeply with us. And it's the unique process of being both stranger and friend at the same time that enables us to really start to communicate and act as a conduit. The piece that I think is critical for anthropologists and design to understand, especially those of us who are working in more of a professional services capacity versus being inside an organization, though it's equal, it, it is important for those inside an organization as well, is that to do our job well, we don't simply understand the people, the culture that we are conducting research within. We're also striving to understand our own culture as well. And to serve as that common point, that conduit, that translates and interprets both sides mm. to each other. Yeah. I am never, when I engage with a client, when I start to do research, solely trying to understand the people that my client is asking me to study. I'm trying to understand my client as well. And often that then allows a smoother translation of what's found, a smoother interpretation. 
Uh, it also really helps understand the pressures that that our clients are under. Again, just going back to that case of, is the choice to make it very difficult to access the innards of a phone a decision to try and prevent phone hacking? Or are there things that your client is, is trying to accomplish that lead to those very rational decisions. Yeah. And so it's that moment where you're trying to build deep empathy, not just with the people you're studying, not just to be the, friend, the stranger and friend to them, but also stranger and friend to your clients mm. as well. Mm. In this process of facilitating meaning between these two groups, the anthropologist is kind of like an instrument, right? Is a mediator of some sorts. But at the same mm-hmm. time, the anthropologist it him or herself is going through a, um, a process. So there, there's, a, there's a certain third element of what happens to the anthropologist at, uh, with, their, with their own practices and how they look at themselves as anthropologists in that kind of mediation process um, that we've seen. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, and the beautiful thing about that is we as a discipline have already been through that within academia within our very process. I mean, while we me- while we are acting as mediators within this, and we do more than just mediate. Uh, t- to be clear, the reason you want an anthropologist is because we are capable of performing analysis mm. and doing all of this. It's not simply interpretation that we're doing. While we mediate, we, we can never and should never immediate ourselves from our work. Exactly we always need to be present within that as well. And and this gets back to the entire writing culture debates Hmm. is we need to be reflexive. We need to account for what our, our presence within this as well. And that's complex. That's deeply complex uh, for two reasons. The first one is that we have to eat. One of the great challenges for a lot of academic anthropologists or, or, or people who've largely worked within the academic space moving into the professional services side is your concept of what constitutes ethnography has mm-hmm. to fundamentally change. Yes. Uh, or you're not going to be able to find work. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone needs to struggle and do their own boundary policing in different ways around that. I very rarely say that I'm conducting ethnography. I will say that all of my research work is informed by ethnographic methods, but I have only, I would say, conducted what I would now comfortably call an ethnography once in my career uh, mm-hmm. as a professional services provider. And that was completely accidental. Uh, and I only realized that uh, after hearing someone talk about how certain types of agile research methods, if you think about them at a meta level, can become ethnography. So there's that piece to it. But the other the other piece is not only do we need to understand how we need to adjust our practice to survive, and part of that, in my opinion, also means interrogating the history of our own practices as anthropologists. You know, the, the reason that ethnography was constantly a year-long farming cycle piece, you know, has as much to do with war conditions in Malinowski as anything else. One of the, again, getting back to Hortense Powdermaker, she was doing ethnographies in a completely different way, a, a much more modern way in some respects, that at the time in the, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s weren't seen as good anthropology because they weren't conforming in certain ways. 
I think that's that's really great, and I mean, it speaks to this. This is one of the topics that is not being talked about, or we haven't heard it talked about too much. Um, what happens to the person that is the anthropologist going to that process of personal questioning, while at the same time they are doing all this complex work um, to under, to make sense of um, of these two different cultural groups. So um, I think it's it's great that you you you've talked to this, and we'd love to invite you actually on another episode, maybe, and just go deeper into this topic, um, maybe even connected to burnout or the transformation of the academic space, because these are all like topics that are really, really dear to our hearts. Um, but I think for, for this one, we're kind of almost nearing the, like the end of our time um, here. And um, just, just one last very quick question before we close for those um, listeners out there that are considering a career in the applied space um, and there may be students um, finishing their master or their PhD. Um, what would you say, Matt, that what would be the, uh, for you an advice that you would give them when they're contemplating maybe a choice between academia um, or the applied sector if they're lucky enough to have that choice? <laughs> yeah, I, I have three key pieces of advice. Um, the first one is, if they are not doing it already, whatever work they're doing, uh, you're doing, capture as as much, as many photos, media artifacts, all those pieces as you can. Because one of the key transitional skills that you're going to have to learn is how to create a presentation, a compelling presentation, and show the work that you're doing. When you're applying for a job, when you're trying to get a job, the people who will be interviewing you are less interested in your findings and more interested in the process. And the more that you can do to illustrate and show that process in a concise fashion, the stronger you're going to present yourself as a candidate. Which leads to the second piece, which is you you need to really learn to develop a different type of storytelling. Uh, and a storytelling that's focused around a sort of clarity that sometimes academics are uncomfortable with. And that's not to say that you cannot at times complicate issues, but you need to learn how to do that very tactically. Mm. And so uh, a lot of what I, I, I counsel people to look into is, is trying to figure out how you can take uh, to take a research project that's been conducted and break it down into, and this sounds very artificial, but it's a great exercise in the same way that writing grants is very artificial, but an important exercise. They will break a story down into five slides that are explaining kind of what the challenges that you were attempting to solve, what methodologies you use to gather data, how the field work went, and were there any challenges that occurred in that. And then ultimately, this notion of, and this is one that is deeply uncomfortable for anthropology, something that's actionable about the data. So mm. it, it's not enough to simply say, we found something interesting, but to talk about what the implications of that is. And that's a very unique space and something that is often not taught well enough in academia, at, mm. at least for people who are not going through an applied anthropology degree. Yeah, That isn't to say that theory isn't important, but theory is a very, very... It's a tool that you, especially in a, in a professional sense, you need to wield like a scalpel. And the moment you start waving it around, a lot of people can get cut and it doesn't lead to good things. Wanted to end here, but there's one last short question around the business side. Just very, very short. Angel sure. is like killing me here, but just very short. Um, 
similar to why a young anthropologist would choose business, I have a question why an anthropologist, why a business would choose an anthropologist. And I mean, I want to keep it very reductive and simple um, and just ask you why to go for an anthropologist and not for a focus group um, or a survey. I think everyone has to come up with their own explanation for when that's that's asked of them. Hmm. But the reality is is that technology is used in context. And so for as much as focus groups and surveys and deep data can reflect certain things, they don't bring you to that moment when someone is interacting with something in their home or their workplace or anywhere else. And without that, without understanding the use of things in context, as one of a number of research methods, you're never fully going to understand things, especially because the reality is people are incredibly bad at remembering how they use things for that reason <laughs> that I said before. We, we, we remove that from our memory. Mm. I don't think about the technology that I'm using. Mm. Cars would be impossible to operate if we had to think about operating cars at all times. Mm. Is, and that's where an anthropologist is most trained. Hmm. to come in, especially that stranger piece that we have an eye. We ask stupid questions, <laughs> stupid questions that lead to very smart places. Yes. Uh, because of that. And that's something that the engineer cannot do, especially the engineer who's a user, hmm. because they're already acculturated in. That's and it. That, and that's critical. Hmm. Matt, this this has been just wonderful. Um, we've 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 tried to police ourselves to keep it very short, um, and we just got a bit over. But um, yeah, thank you so much for um, giving us your time. Um, and um, for our for our listeners out there, we're going to put in the description of the episode links to to Matt's work that's available. Um, so if anybody wants to dig deeper into the bots <laughs> or um, any other excellent um, work you've already done, um, they will they will find it there. Excellent. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.